Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, we are doing a podcast again, and uh, I should make it very, very clear that we are part of the liberal media elite. Uh, Josie Long, for instance, occasionally does cartoons in the Guardian Weekend magazine. I do over six and a half hours of science presenting on Radio 4. We have a stranglehold on your culture, and we're now going to tie Unavoidable. If you do not want to encounter us... You have to bury yourself in a hole yeah. in the ground. There is no way you will in- miss one of my half hours 13 times a year on Radio 4 or one of Josie's occasional cartoons in the Guardian Weekend magazine. Yes, unless you're one of my relatives and then you will miss them. You'll yeah. be like, yeah. oh, do you still do that? No. My dad doesn't see it either. In fact, I'm beginning to wonder if we have got a stranglehold. <laughs> but we are joined by a man who has got a stranglehold because <laughs> Alan Bennett likes him. Not only likes yeah. him, Alan Bennett thinks he is the greatest comic of his generation. Wow, well, really? We are That's joined so nice. by the communist satirist, <laughs> Stuart Lee who is uh, as untrustworthy as us, but he still enjoys books in paper form. Yeah, I yes, saw, thank well, you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I, I saw Alan Bennett said something nice about me in an interview, and I was walking along a road in Camden, and I bumped into him, and they were filming... Um, he was standing outside the house that he used to live in, where the lady in the van lived, which he wrote this book about, this homeless woman who lived in his drive, and uh, they were filming it at his old house, and he was at his old house, and... Um, and I said, oh, thank you for being nice about me in the paper. And we had a little 30-second chat, and that was kind of enough. And then as I was going along the street further, I saw Nick Heitner, the director of that film, going up in a kind of crane to get a shot of the street. And Nick Heitner, I knew from, I knew like for a little bit, 10 years ago, when I, I did direct something at the National Theatre. Hear that he said, stranglehold, hear that grip. Hear, I'm gasping for some kind of other culture. Yeah, Why yeah, is yeah. Stuart Lee giving me over... <laughs> Three hours a year and on BBC Two in his Observer column. Is there nothing else for well, me? Well, it does look bad now that I know I bump into. I was just what is this one road? And they were they were filming a thing about Alan Bennett's life. So that's why he was there. And that road anyway, was the road to Buckingham Palace. It was. It was the road to Buckingham Palace, paved with gold. But anyway, and then Heitner started talking to me, and then my son, who was seven at the time, we might even been six. He said to Nick Heitner, "Are you the director of this?" And he said, "Yes." And he said to him, "Um." You have to be careful because the weather's changing. It's starting to go grey and you won't be able to match up the things that you've already shot with what you film now. And Nick Heitner went, well, thank you very much. I'll I'll bear that in mind and we might be able to do something in post-production. I thought, God bless him. He's an internationally renowned film director and he coped fantastically with a question from a, a child. <laughs> well, that's because really you make your son watch over and over again the Terry uh, Gilliam <laughs> film about how he could never manage to make Don Quixote, which has oh, exactly wow. that. Has already, And it? because I think when, when your son was five, you said, it's time now for you to understand sometimes the failure of artistic endeavour. And then he's seen it, what, about 17, 18 never times? Terry Gilliam getting he angry when it rains. And your son's the DOP on your show as <laughs> he well. Is yeah. Dog on my show. Then, so, about a week that's later, astonishing your we son were on the same that. street walking along with my six-year-old son and my then three-year-old daughter. There was dog muck everywhere. And my daughter was going, dog muck, dog muck, dog muck. And there was an old man in front with a walking stick walking along looking at the dog muck going, oh, God, ah, dog muck, ah. Anyway, then we ended up just behind him and he turned round and he went, look at this dog, Max, going, it's outrageous. And I went, are you Jonathan Miller? And he went, yes, who are you? And I went, oh, um, well, it's very nice to meet you. We were all very grateful for your work. And he went, this dog, Max, it's absolutely... Why can't they clean it up? And then he went in. And I thought, uh, that is probably... Now, they say don't meet your heroes, but if you meet them while they're in the act of complaining about dogma yeah. in the street, then... It's a great leveller. Great leveller, yeah. Not too bad. Also, you've met now everyone surviving from beyond the fringe <laughs> on the know, same yeah. street. In the same street, yeah, under different circumstances, yeah. So the... Uh, there you are, that's my, uh, that's my showbiz anecdote. I've got one other. I've only got two. No, I've only got two you've done shows. two shows. This is typical of you. Yeah. Typical of the metropolitan media yeah. liberal elite okay. and indeed a, Lenin, right. a Leninist narcissist such <laughs> as yourself. Yeah. Uh, who's only had children to create anecdotes. Yeah. Uh, Can I say, I'm very excited and happy that we're recording again. And also, it's very funny that you're th- that this is your performing shtick for today. That's this good. is going to be my shtick. It's Not just for today. Forever. For always. Until, yeah. <laughs> until they learn. But it's so nice. And Sorry, we can cut that out. Maybe no, we don't have to Guys, any of it out. It's great to be here. 
I've been worried though. Is I, I think you were out of the room because I'm wearing a, a t-shirt with uh, an image of Leonard Cohen on today. But if I kind of sit down a bit, it crinkles it up and makes it look like Ronald Reagan. It really so does. I was sitting on the tube or standing on the tube, obviously, because I never sit just in case someone gets on and there's a whole kind of quandary yeah, thing. So I just course. stand all the time. And I saw people kind of staring at me, and I realised afterwards it wasn't because they were going, "Oh, he likes Suzanne and Bird on a Wire." They were going. Why's that asshole got a T-shirt with Ronald Reagan? What, a neoliberal. Yeah, there's no poetry in that man's misery. <laughs> I um, I have a similar thing, which is I have a T-shirt, which was eerily prescient, which was, um, it's of um, David Cameron kissing a disembodied pig's head. And underneath it says, never kiss a Tory. And it's from a band called Los Campesinos. And they yeah. sent it to me before the election. Yeah. So I wore it before the election. And then, you know, funnily after the election, the discourse became really like, why are you so angry at Conservatives? And it was really sort of really kind of suppressing that sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of frustration and anger at their behaviour. And um, then I was wearing it and it, it um, with my jacket over it, it looks like I'm wearing a picture of David Cameron just leaning in <laughs> and nothing yeah, yeah, yeah. else. Like yeah. I would be... Happy yeah. to do that. <laughs> oh, awful. awful. So, the, uh, this new, that we've got a theme, kind of, haven't we? It's yes. going to be books. So, uh, we'll start off with what is your... Well, I'd, what are you reading at the moment? Well, I just finished reading for the first time uh, In Cold Blood, Shumi Capote, and I can't believe it took me this long to read it. I'd sort of heard about it for ages, and I think sometimes when I've heard about something enough, I feel a bit like, well, I'm aware of it, I'll talk about it. Sure. And I really was, it was like I saw um, 2001 Space Odyssey recently after having seen, having not seen it. And before it, I saw... Did um, you see it on the big screen? Yes, I saw it in the IMAX. I saw it in the IMAX. It was incredible. But before it, I saw that film that's like a rip-off of it with Matthew McConaughey and Gravity and all stuff like that. Gravity. Interstellar. Interstellar, yeah. yeah. I saw Interstellar Interstellar's beforehand. brilliant. Oh, it's fantastic. I really enjoyed Interstellar because I, I was watching it on a, on a plane sat next to uh, the Professor Brian Cox. And uh, <laughs> so every now and again, I'd, I'd look, and we were both watching at the same time, and i think... Is that science? And then I'd turn and I'd see him with a big smile and go, that's all right, it must have been science then. He's all happy. He was happy throughout all of it. Wow. But that was the same time that we did. We were off to go and do a recording in America with a guy who'd been the science advisor on Thor. A oh. science advisor on Thor? Yeah, he's great. He's a guy called Tough Sean job. Carroll. Yeah. Well, Tough no, job. he said, because he looked at me as if I was an idiot when I went, well, you're a science advisor on a film about a... a, a, a Man with a magic hammer. Norse god. And he went, yeah. Like, of course, this is yeah, Hollywood. Actually, you have to make sure that the wormholes are as authentic as yeah, possible for the gods yeah. of Asgard to move yeah. through. Actually, do you know what? The good, uh, the, the good thing about science fiction fantasy is when it is... Well, it's not the only... Obviously, the best thing about it is its use of imagination and the way that it reflects our own world back at us through a prism of fantasy. But one and the, of the costumes. Good th- and the costumes. Yeah. <laughs> one of the good things about it is when you sort of... When it's plausible, you know, because I, yeah. I kind of felt like... The start, when I was in my 20s and I had time to watch television and, and videos and things, I watched all Star Trek, and obviously they were very coherent in Star Trek about the science was consistent with itself. But in Doctor Who, it was never it was sort of made up as it went along, didn't they? Because actually they were shot in such a rush, the early ones, that the actors would just spout gibberish to fill in spaces, ah, I think. Well, there like are the some that you, you probably didn't see them because you're very, you're, you're very much Sylvester McCoy's girl. Yeah. But I, I watched some of the early yeah. Tom Baker ones, which are still pretty good. They're kind of hammer horror ones, yeah. Philip Hinchcliffe. But you, you forget that some of them, they obviously haven't worked out how to end it logically, and then suddenly just go, oh, all the aliens have, have, have gone. How did that happen? I turned the mirror round. Of course. <laughs> jing and a jing, jing and a jing. And you go... What? But that's like none that. of this was set know, up. Yeah, I know. That's like that bit in The Simpsons where they're doing a Q and A with Xena Warrior Princess, and there's all these like super fans doing their questions, like in episode five this, and the guy's like, a wizard did it. If anyone's got a question, a witch did it. Is a witch, and everyone's like, oh god, beaten. But so as I, I was saying, so I was watching Interstellar, and then I saw um, 2001 afterwards, and I was like, oh. This is what you were doing. This is what everything has been doing since. And that's how I feel within Cold Blood. I was like, oh, this is why the New Yorker is the way it is now. This is why all of the long reads that I read online, this is why everyone I know who is a journalist writes in this way. It's because of this book. It's funny, isn't it, when that that happens and you realise that a thing you like... It's a cover version. Yeah, yeah, and you, you kind of have to sort of... I mean, it's difficult, I think, now that now that all culture exists simultaneously, it's hard for people to understand this, whereas when we were younger... You know, things went out of print, records went out of print, films disappeared, you couldn't see them again. Mm. And so you did, you had a kind of sense that things were moving forwards and that there was a continuum and that like, things had been an influence on things. And I mean, I remember like 
it was it was really hard to find sort of sixties psychedelic records, for example. And then in the mid eighties, I suddenly I think they found like one Velvet Underground album. They were really hard to find it. And you kind of heard it and went, Oh, this is where like indie rock came from. We didn't really it was know. the Andy Warhol one. That was that was the one that was still always available. Yeah, yeah. For, it was kind of yeah. weird. Like and you, you kind of I mean there was stuff like Nick Drake, for example, now he's on adverts. It was absolutely gone. You couldn't even find it. And then it was sort of yeah, reissued. It's really in sold about, out, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it was reissued in about eighty six on vinyl for the first time since it was since it was read out. And then it became this thing that everyone I'm really influenced by that. But now he's sort of in the pantheon of artists as if he always had been. But he was just you kind of it is weird when you find that thing and you have to sometimes you know, when you when you hear people moaning about particular comics from the eighties as well, you kind of go, Well what you have to understand is there was no model. You know, they sort of invented this from the ground up and then what you've got now is an echo of it in many ways. Mm. And it's sort of weird. But also on the flip side, what you've got now is this chance to have so many diverse yeah. influences at once that you're this mosaic yeah. that's kind of, again, like uncreated before. Yeah. And everybody's got this chance. So you get kind of really young people making stuff and they're influenced by something really obscure because they're like, oh, I chanced upon it. Yeah. Funniest sure. thing, and I love it. And you know, yeah. I'd um, never heard the soft machine until Thursday. Oh, How Thursday. bad is that? That's worse than me. I've Robin. heard, yeah, I've heard. You know, I've got lots of Robert Wyatt albums. For some reason, I was in a bookshop called Boom. She said, "I recommend it. It's on uh, College Street in Toronto." <laughs> and uh, you know that bit, that that lovely thing when you're in a bookshop. And you know you're in the right kind of bookshop. You've looked at the selection. You've looked at some of the things I've got on the table. You think, <laughs> oh, this is a, oh, look, oh, that's a Philip K. Dick that I didn't even know existed. That kind of thing. Oh, collection of interviews that say I have print for a long time at a very reasonable price. And they've got some. And there was a, the good thing was the, one of the reasons I went was I was looking for a bookshop in Toronto, and there were two really good reviews, only three reviews online. And the other one went, "This place is just full of rats, and all the people who work there are crack addicts." Yeah. Right. And then when I walked in, I was, uh, and the door opened. I went, "Hello," and this woman went, "Hello," and I thought, "Oh, maybe it is all crack addicts." <laughs> Actually, but it wasn't. She just really got into some jazz that she was listening to, and then they, she put on Soft Machine, and I just never heard it. And I thought, what is this? And she went, Oh, it's Soft Machine's first album. And I thought, Isn't it magnificent that you can be as old as I am, and there are still revelations that were out there all the time? Well, we, and me and the wife watched. To. We watched Seinfeld for the first time. About you'd never years watched ago. Seinfeld. Never watched it, and it was when she was pregnant with the second kid, and you can't do much. And we watched. Or Seinfeld from beginning to end, and I was actually, and, I, and it was great to, f- to come up to find something that's thought was a cornerstone <coughs> of modern culture, really. And mm. it's the, the people go, "This is the best sitcom ever written," and you go, "Is it really?" Well, I think I would have seen it, wouldn't I? If it <laughs> and then you watch it, and of course, it is. It's pretty bloody it's good, brilliant. and it's a great thing to come across for the for the first time. And, and actually, you know what? I'm glad I didn't find it when I was younger because I might have. I think I might have thought, "Oh, comedy's been sort of done, really. I won't try and wow. contribute." Well, do you know what I mean? It sort of it, it's very humbling. Yes. And actually, sometimes it was easier when we were young to, to be confident about things because you were more ignorant of stuff. But that's funny <laughs> to me because... Oh, that's definitely true. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Because you're just like, well, I know it and I feel it and I must be right yeah, and you yeah, just go yeah. for it. But I was thinking about 10 years ago, you watched that Jerry Seinfeld documentary. Yeah, yeah. About him going back to stand-up. Comedian, but you wouldn't, yeah, 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 comedian. Comedian, yeah. But I was thinking about that one quite recently because I was talking with a friend of mine and I was like, well, of course Jerry Seinfeld comes across as so gentle and wise and lack of egoy about it because he's so successful. He doesn't need to be. And of course that other guy doesn't because that other guy doesn't have anything and he's desperate, you know? Yeah. And so it's kind of funny that... But I suppose he just is so likeable that you're like, no, no, he's cool. I have a problem with some of those documentaries. I've seen a few recently on Netflix where there seems to be a tradition amongst Americans, or there's a few of them, which are... Um, Tony has decided to get rid of all his set. He will never do it again. He only has 17 years to come up with a new 50 minutes. <laughs> and you go, well, hang that's, on. That's being a comedian. Yeah, you've got a, you're a comedian and you do nothing else. Yeah, That's all you do is you think of stuff and you go, yeah, I'm very worried. And I've got, yeah, well, that's just, yeah, it's a daily thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This idea. But that's what I find interesting is when you go to some of the clubs in LA and stuff like that and you think every night people go, I have to do my best eight. Because the guy from the show that I need might be in. Yeah, and that's where the kind of terror is. So this is just all about books today, isn't it? (laughs) Um, So the first thing is, because you mentioned Doctor Who, and I was going to ask what, uh, like my first favourite book 
that I remember. You know your first kind of favourite mm-hmm. book? Yeah. And mine was, I took this repeatedly out of the Chorleywood Library, was The Making of Doctor Who. Oh, right. It was just, I, I, and I, ever since then, I've, I'm a big fan of that kind of reference yeah, book. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember when the big Radio Times book of comedy came out and Dave Gorman and I, we just sat in his flat about four days just go oh and that leads to a Richard Bryars sitcom we hadn't heard of and then back and forth but the, I loved that but there were just a few images in there a few black and white stills of Tom Baker and the seeds of doom and that was the book that every time I went to the library I knew I should have been reading you know something different but the make of Doctor Who so Stuart Lee what was your first book where you went I love this book well you know I mean lots of kids books that I like but I think when I, when I was about seven six or seven i started reading marvel comics and one of the things that was in marvel comics was the marvel comics adaptation of robert e howard's conan the barbarian and then i realized you could buy books of conan the barbarian in wh smith's which were published by sphere and were sort of shoddy badly edited repackagings of the original pulp fiction stuff from the 30s with garish but very exciting frank frazetta covers and i I think I remember having, you know, psychedelically transported moments reading reading those. Particularly the first one I read, I'd have, and it, it was about seven or eight. I was reading, I think I don't know. I've never known how you pronounce it, Conan the Chimerian or Conan the Chimerian. I don't know. And there was one little story in that about how he was, he's on a battlefield and he wakes up and everyone else is dead and it's in the snow and he sees this woman there, running along, taunting him with a bit of gossamer material, and he chases after her, and she ta- she brings him to these big blokes that try and kill him and then he gets away and it's the frost giant's daughter and and uh, then he then he gets knocked out and then he wakes up at the end and the old men that have found him say that's the frost giant's daughter she hangs around the battlefields trying to prey on the wounded uh and but it was and he goes oh it's perhaps it was all a dream and then he goes but hang on then he finds the bit of material that he'd grabbed off her in his hand and i was going wow who thought of this it's absolutely amazing because that's a standard like yeah. um you know, short story kind of trick, isn't it? Where was it a dream? But I remember that absolutely blowing my mind. And, it's um, a bit like an episode of Mr. Ben yeah, as well. Like and Conan ben. went back to yeah, Festive yeah. Rose. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of the snowman. Yeah, yeah, well, the snowman. And, uh, the, and the other Conan thing was that my... Conan the snowman. Let's make Conan the snowman. My dad's parents saw me reading one of these books and were very angry about it and said that my mother was an irresponsible parent and that my reading should be censored and guided. And, of course, this actually just made it even more... Um, and weirdly, I, I kind of thought maybe I'd imagined that those were any good. And I went back to them a few years ago. They were all republished without the edits in them. They were sort of edited by these guys that thought they should clean up his style a bit for the, uh, for, for the publication of the paperbacks. And the original texts are even better. This is a guy, he's a hack writer. He's sitting in the back room of his parents' uh, house somewhere in a little town in Texas. He died when he was about 30, committed suicide. He never left the town. Never went anywhere apart, and everything he knew about history and whatever and was from the library. And he sat there in this room, knocking this stuff out. And there was some piece he wrote at the time where he said he felt like the characters that he wrote about were standing behind him, telling him the stories. And they're written in this very immediate way, and you imagine a roll of paper sort of going through the typewriter, and there being no time to correct it before you put it in the envelope, stick the stamp on it, and post it off to Weird Worlds magazine. And there's something really very very sort of visceral and primal about Robert E. Howard's writing it's tragic that a lot it's become it's one of these things that's become a cliche because it's been so heavily imitated well that's what it's the same as you were saying about music because there's I mean there are things like well now there are the sexy Highlander books which are kind of in that (laughs) way where there's I forget the name of the author but I have read I think it's the Immortal Highlander and they are he you know sexy blacksmith if you're into sexy blacksmiths then you you would like the hunter and of course then there's all the uh, the Tarnsman of Gore the Wizards of Gore all and they are but exactly the Gossamer all of them have she's in Gossamer uh, she's a slave girl he's got big hands one thing yeah it's uh, but that's it, that, that way of writing because I found it, it when I when I was meant to give up stand up I haven't yeah. really given up stand up I've given up being paid for stand up <laughs> and I'm just doing you know endless benefits instead and stuff and uh, and I decided I was going to try and write like a pulp writer and write three thousand words every day that I had that I didn't have to do loads of stuff I would write three thousand words any story as if you're you know almost like that kind of L Ron Hubbard yeah, yeah. thing of having just a he had you know a roll of paper yeah. he didn't have different you know when he was typing type 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 and then he would hit the number that were needed for that issue of amazing stories or astounding stories and that's the story and off yeah. it goes and wow. it's a, an interesting thing i mean he his books are not really worth 
going to. But of course, again, people we mentioned before, like Philip K. Dick. It's yeah. a slippery you know, that, slope. That you read one, you education. become a Scientologist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that is a book that I will recommend. We'll talk about it on another podcast. But Going Clear, which is the book that then the HBO ah, film is, yeah. is Going Clear is, you know, when you read a bit like Jeffrey Archer's biography by Michael Crick, where you have to keep stopping and going, no. And then you realise it. this is real. This, this really happened because otherwise there would be litigation. Mm. I don't know much about Jeffrey Archer. Oh, it's, well, it's, it starts off with this, this things like his father, who was much older. His, his mother used to write a regular column uh, in the Western Supermare Gazette, or whatever it's called, in which uh, she would talk about her lovely little boy, Jeffrey, who's known as Button. Little Button. Button. <laughs> Each week would be a different adventure of Button. You know, today Button met Nicholas Hintner. Anyway, uh, Heitner, whatever he's called. But anyway, and then and her, the dad was much older, and he apparently went out to New York during the First World War, uh, because he said he'd been injured in the war to collect money for the troops, and it was just his appendix scar, and he would show off that, so that's why I was injured and collect money for the troops. Wow. And apparently, uh, basically, it's in his yeah. blood. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's it's yeah, it's a really and going clear is when you read the first hundred pages about L. Ron Hubbard, it is a, an astounding piece of work. But yeah. sorry, so that so that was what was yours, Josie? What was the first thing that you? Well, I think I'm thinking about it wrong because I was thinking about the first time that I was old enough to kind of choose to read a novel. I think that's what I'm I was thinking of that thinking time. About. I, I was thinking of that thing where you do, you do, you find a thing, or you, you yeah. know, you go to your local library, that kind of stuff. Because mine was really formative. In, I was like, I read Fahrenheit four five one, and it was the first time I'd read a book. But I was probably twelve. See, like, this is the thing. Young. I remember that's with Stu, I, I named my hamster after Ray Bradbury. Oh, did 11. you? My hamster was called Bra- called Bradbury. And my thing about Ray Bradbury is ridiculous. It was like a sort of school. You know, there used to be book clubs in school to encourage you to read. Yeah. Yeah. And weirdly, for some reason, the Illustrated Man was in the school book club where you could order the paperback. And I was yeah, 11. I remember that. It was for yeah. ours as well, yeah. yeah. That was, was the only way Bradbury. It was like a picture. Was? The picture on the front was a like, bit weird. And I thought, well, I'll, buy, I'll get that. But that's because it, it was the it was 80s. Fantastic. And yeah. whoever did put together that... Uh, the 70s. Yeah. Whoever put together that book thing was a cool progressive teacher yeah. who, you know, had yeah. all these amazing... And then I read, I read about five or six Ray Bradbury's. It's funny, actually, because I'm just getting stuff out of boxes, having moved again and... You know, they've sort of, uh, they'll survive the cull. Although, weirdly, I read, when you said to me, what are you, what's the last thing you read? One of the last things I read was a new Ray Bradbury novel, Farewell Summer, from about five years ago, which is not very good. Is actually. that the, I mean, when you say new, so that would have been just before he died then. What is it? Because he only he died, I mean, what, three years ago, something like that? 2006, 2008. I, think... I mean, it's just abysmal. It's a shame. I like but, the fact uh, that when, hard, when you, I'm glad it? you said yeah. that it was when you were 12 because there was, a, and it might be, I reckon you might be older than that as well. Because uh, no, I remember, I remember doing I a, a show with you on, Very I think it was called Festival FM, right. where uh, we were all talking about our first records. You know, yeah, mine yeah, was something yeah. like Matchstalk Men and Matchstalk yeah, yeah. Cats <laughs> and Dogs by Brian and Michael. Yours oh, was something, you know. That. And, and the other guy on the show, I can't remember who it was, he went, he went and well, the first thing I got was uh, Miles Davis is a kind of blue. Oh, shut and up. And it was only after the show we found out he hadn't bought a record till he was 16. What an idiot. And also deliberately like, not being one of those precocious yeah. children that deliberately doesn't buy anything for fear so of the repercussions of shame. Yeah. You know, even at the age of five, he thought, one day I'll be on Festival FM <laughs> broadcasting in South Edinburgh. I better not buy this childish record. John Pertwee's Three Little Fish. Yeah. <laughs> I had a thing where the first time I went to buy tapes, because I bought, I bought um, the Take That Single Babe on vinyl. Mm. Uh, great vinyl to buy but I went and saved up and I bought tapes when I was about 10 or 11 and I bought uh, Nirvana in utero and Terrorvision and Blur Pop Life so it was all these things that were like Terrorvision quite cool band. at the time I thought yeah. they were a good pop band but then I also bought Pato Banton Baby Come Back because I was 11 years old and I wasn't like cool I just like had heard that those yeah, were things yeah. that you should like and oh, then, I, used to, I remember doing things that, yeah, that, that bit where you're buying a Smith's record, you also think, I wonder what, well, I'll, I'll get the new Smith's record and also Meatloaf's I'll Go Blind Before I Stop because it was on Saturday Live and I like alternative comedy, so therefore Meatloaf is linked to. Yeah. 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 To be fair, I have played Girlfriend in a Coma a lot more than Blind Before I Stop. <laughs> I, think, I think if it's play, it only goes up to the, the second half of the record, the grooves remain pristine. Ha! <laughs> uh, so we'll go on to the. Well, you were talking about so, so the book that you're reading. Well, I was going to recommend, in fact, the latest book. That was the the thing that uh, I thought. What, what have you? I haven't done? asked you what you're reading. Uh, not really into books. Ha! The, you know, uh, what the problem is, right? You you asked me about this, and like, you know, I, I'm just total total work and dad now, and I that's why I keep a list now of what I've read just to prove to myself that I still do have some kind of cultural life because I I don't I haven't seen anything, I haven't read anything. I'm just kind of 
hanging in by the skin of my teeth. I don't know about anything. I don't know who people are in newspapers. I read a newspaper today that someone says Instagram is over. I didn't even know what it was. But, but that's exactly that's shown you over. why it was not required. You could have spent a little adventure in Instagram, and in fact, that, that's well, why I, I never. The most Instagrammed it. woman in Australia is now saying Instagram's over. Who is the most Instagrammed? woman? I don't know because I don't know what Instagram is. I don't even understand what it means. It, I'll take it's a photo Shebby, of us. I'll put it Shebby. on my Instagram. It's it, Instagram is a fun. Type this is not about network. Instagram. Okay, right. Instagram is a distraction from books. Shut right. up, young person. Thirty-three. Um, I'm right, nowhere so near thirty-four. I'm thirty-three. I thought I would start off oh, by four. Uh, Fifty-one years. This is someone we were talking about yeah, in yeah. terms of books. This is a book that I read uh, a couple of months ago, oh, and it's by Steve Aylett, who, uh, for a lot of people, the first thing they might have read if you have read is Lint. Yeah, which well, Robin is, asked me what book yeah. he always gives to other people, and I, I've got through dozens of copies of Lint by Steve Aylett. I think it is the funniest book I've ever read, and it and it, it, it's, it makes me convulse with laughter. And I've nearly had a road accident once. Well, I was in a car driving along with Greg Fleet. It was reading it aloud to me, <laughs> and I was laughing so much that I nearly crashed on the motorway. It is brilliant. His use of language is it sort of sets off all kinds of crazy triggers in your brain. Uh, he's fantastic. Well, one of the, in fact, I remember with, because uh, I've got a stranglehold on uh, uh, culture, yeah. um, I've been on quote unquote with Nigel Reese, as have you, Stuart Lee. Oh, yeah. And the second time I went on, I think you've only been on once, probably oh, yeah, not asked back because you weren't as clever or something. Yeah. And uh, the um, when I was asked about, and the two people that I picked to uh, be who I was going to quote were Alan Moore and Steve Aylett. Yeah. And you could see Nigel Reese going, what? Yeah, what? Yeah. Who are these modern middle-aged men yeah, that you yeah, talk yeah, of yeah, who yeah, have yeah. not been dead for a while? Yeah. And he is, he's fantastic. His, his new book, which is called Heart of the Original, which is actually, it's a non-fiction book. It's about creativity. And it's one of those unbound books. And it's just the way that he writes as he, uh, I'll, I'll see if I can find, um, nothing much interesting happens amid a conformity so innate it cannot clearly perceive or discuss itself, right? Every single page is just burdened it, it, and it's fantastic there uh, um, let's see if we can uh, giving the same argument while wearing different trousers gives the illusion of varied insight <laughs> and, uh, we're still on page one uh, it's less disturbing to have a spider climb into your mouth than to have one climb out yeah, and he's just yeah, yeah, all the way through, and he's just talking about creativity. And uh, I'll see if the, um, the Swastika Knight published the year Ayn Rand was busy plagiarising Zamyatin's We. Uh, the, uh, um, let's see if we... Uh... On the first page of Lint, there's an... an, an a, a, well, can you explain, actually, well, what Lint, Lint is? Well, Lint is a, is a fictionalised biography of a character who is a sort of pastiche of William Burroughs and um, probably... Uh, L. Ron Hubbard and all sorts of like cult American writers, and um, uh, it's yeah, it's great. And it, but the, on the opening page of that, there's a, a, a simile where he compares someone to a baffled chef, which is like a thing that just makes me. And every time I see a chef, I think of a baffled <laughs> chef. And in fact, there was one of those models of a chef at the end of our road outside a cafe, and I always think of that. I call that the baffled chef because it's like it just it just lodges in you. He's got these great. Things that just lodge in your mind. Superb. Yeah. And he's, yeah, it's because I, every time that I've read Lint, I thought, I know that I'm missing an enormous number of jokes because he, he's referencing all of these different books that he's read and that he understands. Yeah, but it doesn't and matter. I, no, that's a great thing. carried it, along it, by the flow it of doesn't the matter. language, you know. He's you so know there's funny. lots of things that you watch and you think, I know that I'm missing because this is so dense. Yeah, well, it's but like it's reading a, a, it's like a musical thing. It's got, it's got like, his writing's got sort of rhythm and depth. It doesn't really matter. I mean, it's like really great poetry in that it's sort of beyond meaning in a way. It's just the absurdity of these collisions of images just carries you along. It's kind of like modernist poetry in that way. It doesn't really matter that you don't get it. It's just, it's it's just also, superb. It's also like shades and impressions of meaning and yeah. little things that you will have picked up culturally but yeah, not yeah. really know about, but it still yeah. kind of it like gives you a small sense of it. Like... I've been just enjoying thinking about the idea of the fact that words have so many different uh, meanings loaded into them he and also, about how much that changes. And he stuff also like does that. what, you know, if you watch old Chris Morris stuff and then you try and watch the news, the news <laughs> seems silly. Mm. Yeah, of course. Like, Lynn, uh, Eilert's writing makes a lot of writing seem silly afterwards. You read other things and it just seems the sort of virus of his writing, the sort of after buzz of him infects everything else around it and it makes other things seem hilarious when they're not meant to be because you kind of 
you get this sort of aftertaste of Steve Ayler as you're reading them. It's really funny. But is that something where I was, you know, mentioning the fact that there will be things you'll miss, but you won't, you won't even know you've missed them because you are enjoying the ride. You're yeah. enjoying yeah. it. It doesn't matter. But if that was something that would say, you know, in, in the same way with mainstream television and many are not even mainstream, which is if someone, an executive is looking through, they go, well, I don't think anyone's going to get that joke. It matter. Whereas I mean, the power of the, you know, it, yeah. it, and to yeah. explain to someone, they'll still, they won't be lost. Yeah. You know, I'm sure everyone yeah. in this, you know, all three of us have had moments where someone, when you've been working on radio or TV thing, I remember once, I mean, years ago saying I had a reference to Alistair um, Crowley. I was like, no, 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 that is. no, one. And, and it was linked to, you know, some of the, the rock bands of the late 60s and early mm. 70s. They went, they went, and I thought he was one of the most famous figures of the first half of the 20th century, yeah. the great beast. And for those who do get it, yeah. that will be fine. And for those who don't, they won't go, switch this off immediately. Mm. Who yeah. is Alistair Crowley? Yeah, there's, a, there's a generation of people that have semi-working knowledge of who philosophers are because they were jokes about them in Monty Python. Yeah. yeah. Which you didn't necessarily understand, but you kind of got... You, you kind get of got, enough. You get an idea. Like, or that, you look it up like these days. Yeah, the I best mean, thing about having a smartphone in your pocket is you just go, what's that? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. brilliant. That song is factually inaccurate, though, just in case you... I know. Yeah, just to... <laughs> This is a lovely. This is again. We're still on chapter one. They're all really small chapters as well. They're, they're kind of four pages long. I never long. think of the song. I always think of the football match sketch. Oh yeah, that's my that first well. thing when I think about them doing philosophers. But just being that that thing of well, or the philosophy today, where they're all sat round in the thing. I love. I I really love the fact that they. It, it seems to me like the sixties people were still so much more in contact with philosophy and with classical music in a way that we're just not because it's just that bit more removed. I don't know. There was an inter- I, I was with a, well, a former comic backstage at an event recently, and he was getting really angry about certain comedians. I don't know why. And he was saying things like, these comedians who pretend that they've read these books. And the references he used, I went, well, I know those people, and they really do read those books. There's no reason to be angry right. that, oh, I see they've read a book, and in some ways they're trying to create some <laughs> form of stand-up that might be enriching. In, in, oh, what a stupid idiot. And it was really odd to have this kind of level of aggression. This is, uh, anyway, for the final, uh, from the heart of the original, uh, I'll tell you shortly. Um, write every story as if it was your last, whether suicide note or proof of life. Ha, wow. That's a great, I mean, all the way through. Uh, I'll see if there's one other one where, uh, um, it's, it's an app, yeah, he is, he is an incredible uh, writer. And, and he d- does also, he follows through with this heart of the original about trying to be original, which is probably why he's not as well known as he should be, because yeah. he, but he should be. But so that's uh, Lint. We all recommend that, don't we? Because you've yeah. read it as well. Oh, I, I, I've read Lint, but I've not read that. No, that, that, that's quite new. Steve uh, Aylett's Heart of the Original Unbound Books. I have always recommended a book that you gave me 10 years ago on tour, The Timoleon Vieta Come Home. Oh, oh that's that great. So yeah, many people. Yeah. yeah. Well, Hang actually, on. Yeah. When I was with you and we were at that bookstall underneath Watering oh, Bridge, yeah, you went, funny. you should buy it. But oh, for everyone else, I? you've been buying it for other it people. It wasn't your birthday. And Dan you're Rhodes is the writer of... You own a house, Robin. Dan Rhodes has written uh, a, a really great novel this last year about um, Richard Dawkins. It's called The Professor That Came In From The Snow. It turns out it's about a man who thinks he's Richard Dawkins, but isn't. Anyway, no one would touch it. So he did it himself, 500 copies, and they all sold out. And now he's got a proper publisher for it. And you can buy it. Dan Rhodes, R-H-O-D-E-S, and it is a superb book. Dan Rhodes was a guy, again, this is like, in the early 90s, I had, a, as part of my dominance with the media, I did six-hour-long shows on Radio 1 with Richard Herring, and we were allowed to play music, and I played a track by Giant Sand, and a bloke called Dan Rhodes wrote to me and went, I like Giant Sand, do you want a bootleg of this last London gig? I went, all right, and I sort of then I met him somewhere, and he said he wanted to be a writer, and I thought, well, I like this bloke. I hope he's a good writer because it'll be awkward, you know. It doesn't really matter. But And then his first novel came out. He's a fantastic writer. And he uh, he's never really made a living out of it. He's a postman in um, in uh, Buxton now. But he's absolutely superb. I mean, he's... he's CJ Stone's a postman as well. There's a lot of postmen yeah. in... in uh, a lot of postmen in rock as well. Yeah. Rock postman is a good uh, thing. Robert Lloyd from the Nightingales was a postman at one point. Uh, Vic Goddard is a postman. Uh, the bass, uh, guitarist from the Heads is a postman. There's a lot of good psychedelic postmen. But I actually not, get annoyed <laughs> by the fact that the change the in the postal service because we used to have a regular postman. Yeah. And we had, a, you know, that one. He's, he's brilliant. Well, like sometimes he just his allotment. He'd have too many marrows, so you yeah. get home and he just left a marrow on the doorstep. Saying, "There we go." He's a brilliant postman, but mm. we don't have him so much anymore because like they've though, changed it. Yeah, in the town, but you know, no, in the countryside we get marrows and joy. 
despite your satire of the countryside some years ago, to cover no, up your meetings no, living in Joy. urban Leninist yeah. squalor. He's great though, Dan Rose. He's good. He's good. Good. Like he's he's one of these writers as well. When he's asked to do a talk, he can he's really deliver. He's got a he, he's got a he's got a comic timing about him and a stage presence. Not that it should matter, because of oh. course, as Andy Miller says in his brilliant book, The Year of Reading Dangerously, one of the great things about books used to be that you didn't have to talk about them on podcasts and you didn't have to meet the writers and you were allowed to enjoy them in a solitary way. And now we're supposed to go to reading groups and share our opinions online. And one of the great things about books was it was a private thing. Yeah. And you got some time alone with someone else's thoughts. But now the idea is it's a kind of community thing. The writer has to be some sort of celebrity. Weird. Have I you read... always... I was going to say... I'm just going to go down road the moment. before we no, well, I was on. just going to say gone. that when I always feel whenever I'm reading a book and it happens when you buy American books at the end when it says with reading group discussion I always feel a bit disappointed in myself like, oh no, I've chosen a mainstream book yeah, that yeah, Richard yeah. and Judy want to talk yeah. about. <laughs> oh, like I feel sort of faintly annoyed and insulted by reading group suggestions. It's, it's not a bad thing but it's kind of become... Well, it's like when you look at something like the Cheltenham Literary Festival, it's basically kind of festival of celebrity chefs, you know, and wow, who've written books. It's kind of, it's much harder for a writer to just be a writer now. And of course, we have advantages if, if we write things as comedians, we have a point of sale afterwards. I mean, it's taken me five years, but I, well, I, I mean, I got about, a, the, the, the advance I got for my book for Faber took me about two years of going around the country selling it off to gigs to pay off. But mo to to meet, you know. But most um, writers don't have that opportunity. To yeah, I, that's true. these days, you, you have to carry. If you're a musician, you have to carry your physical media to the point of sale, don't you, in order to see a, a return on it. You know, it's weird. The well, reading book group thing, though, which, when you mentioned that, it made me think of. I don't know if either of you know a, a, a writer called Emma McBride. No. And her first book's called uh, A Girl Is a Half Formed Thing. And it's incredible. It's kind of she's it, it it's it's a bit Beckett, a bit Joyce. It's incredible kind of visceral. And what's great about it is it took her ten years, and then it was picked up by a small publisher in Norwich. They went, we'll print it. And then when it came out, I think I think it was Faber went. Do you know what? We'll buy this off you. We love it. It's and yeah. it's. But what's great is it's won loads of awards, but it is. It's not an easy read. It's mm -hmm. a fact. It's one of those reads that once you're into it, you 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 go. I have to read it again. I have to read it again. This is this. It it, it is like thing. I mean, it reminds me of things like Beckett's Not I and, uh, and wow. And, um, but because she's won loads of awards, it keeps people go. Oh, we should do that in our book club. Yeah. And if you go on any of the book sites, right, and you see the reviews, they are only five or one star. <laughs> and the <laughs> fury. Well, we had this in our book group in Chertsey, and we were all very angry. No one finished it. I don't know what she thinks the point is, but it was bleak and rather silly. And it's just. <laughs> and, and she, of course, has you know she has enough armor, having spent ten years to go. I understand that because it's that bit of going. It's won an award. And this happens in comedy as well, where you go, you know, Nick Helm, that lovely thing where he, you know, ran across the Pleasance Courtyard in Edinburgh when someone walked out of his show going, next time, read what it says under the stars. You know, so because yeah. he's had four stars in the Telegraph. But Ema McBride's uh, Girls Are Half Form thing, I'll, I'll give you a copy of that because it's, it's really fascinating. And also, I will recommend, I don't think she's ever going to do it again, but if anyone out there ever sees that Lisa Dwan is doing the Beckett trilogy of Not I, Four Falls like and Rock Did you not? No. Oh, well, I think you're wrong. And I think it is typical of your mainstream Maoist taste. Mm. No, it well, didn't, it's wasn't, typical, didn't follow the rules, you know. What do you mean, didn't follow the rules? She lit things in ways that you're not supposed to. She sort of, it was all carted up for the West End. Oh, oh we see, see so I didn't see it in the West End. I, I, I saw it in a small theatre and I saw I don't see oh, what we the, You know uh, what, maybe they over-designed it for the West End to try and disguise it as something else. Like when Rick and Aid did... Um, Godot, went for Godot, Godot, and they, it was a great joke in Godot, where they, you know, he's very specific in the script where the tree has got like three leaves on it. Uh, well, first of all, it's got nothing on it. The tree's like a stick, it's got nothing on it. Yeah. And then at the start of the second half, one of them goes, look, the tree is covered in leaves, and there's like three leaves on it. Hmm. But they're trying to see the best in it. The way they did it for Rick and Aid, because they've been told, oh, you got to make it look West Endy. It's a fucking massive tree with hundreds of leaves on it. So it looks like a real tree. So when they go, the tree's covered in leaves, Everyone's it is like, covered yeah. in leaves. So... You've, you've, you've ruined that. Well, like, and they that didn't have a that... child come out and explain that God I wasn't going to turn up. They, they, they had an Oompa Loompa. <laughs> it was ridiculous. The Beckett estate were very angry. Can I say, this is and so You've got odd. Deep Roy dressed as an Oompa Loompa in Godot. <laughs> um, well, not... Uh, what, how many Oompa Loompas are going to be in it? 
Well, they they sing the song about God are not turning up. <laughs> if you are wise, <laughs> I had a dream last night that I ran across the front of a stage while a performance of Waiting for God was going on. What does that mean wow. symbolically? It means I had a dream. You I had a dream Godot. last week that Will Adamsdale, the actor comedian, the acclaimed uh, had, comedic yeah, writer, told me that he was in a play with Nancy Sinatra, and she was staying in London, and she'd gone off the rails. And could I sort of babysit her? And I had to go out for a night with Nancy Sinatra, who was like mad and old and drunk, and I had to kind of look, make sure she didn't get in any kind of trouble and stuff. It's a bizarre dream. Well, let it? me tell you my <laughs> real Nancy Sinatra story. Yes, Did he tee that up well? Yeah. No, this was yes, when I was out in New York doing the, uh, the the science radio show, which I have a stranglehold of all the scientific yep. coverage in the media. And uh, the um, I went off to an art gallery and Brian Cox went off to have some drinks, right? That's the difference between us, yeah. obviously. And uh, and then I came back and uh, he said, oh, we'll get the bill now. And the waiter, he said, oh, can we get the bill? And the guy went, oh, oh the bill's been paid, sir. And uh, he said, um, he said, oh, oh, who paid it? And he went, um, off, I'll find out. And it was the head of IT in this hotel. He'd, he'd recognised Brian Cox in TV series. And he said, and, uh, and he said, oh, thanks very much. That's really kind of you. Come to our show if you can. And then this woman suddenly turned around. And she went, oh, my God, you, are you... But you're Brian Cox. Oh, I love, I love Infinite Monkey Cage. It's one of my, and she starts talking about the dead straw. And, she goes, and he goes, well, it's not just me. This is, you know, here's my co-host. And she goes, oh, Tony, I can't believe it. So she's a big fan. Yeah. And um, anyway, so she's got, and then I recognise the woman behind. And I think, I think I know. And she goes, oh, this is my mum. And she goes, the mother kind of goes, hi. And I think it's probably a little bit annoyed. But I also recognise who she is. And then when they all leave, I said to them, you do know, the producer and Brian, I said, you know who that just was, who her mum was? They went, no. Went, that was Nancy Sinatra. And then they went, <gasps> and then afterwards, Brian was going, it's really weird. I thought I wouldn't get recognised in New York. But even Nancy Sinatra. I said, no, Nancy Sinatra did not recognise you. Her daughter did. And you ruined their afternoon for Nancy Sinatra. Her daughter likes you, but not Nancy Sinatra. <laughs> yeah, That's really the, uh, Nancy Sinatra's yeah. much more of a fan of Tony. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, yeah. She said she's a Tony fan. <laughs> so the next, uh, watch. Well, I, I've brought a copy because you said you love it. Oh, it's uh, as a member of the Metropolitan Media League, obviously your favourite artist is the Potter Grayson Perry. Yeah. Uh, because as we know, everyone in the that is a thing that I I really like. That is. Uh, have you read that book? Yeah. Pl uh, pl uh, Plains Plains Gallery, Gallery by Grayson Perry. It's not. It's about. It's his lectures, BBC it's just, lectures, yeah, it's where they creative processes, and it's really. Relevant to anyone who does anything. I mean, it's just, it's really, it's such a great book. I mean, I, I, I know it's like a cliche, but I was, I was on holiday with the kids uh, in a log cabin in uh, Hampshire and I ignored them for 30, 36 hours after I bought this because it was unputdownable. It was unputdownable. <laughs> I thought, what's Grayson Perry going to say next about the artistic process? I couldn't believe it. But I and think then the drawings that, that he uses and the art and this. But that's what the, the problem with him almost is that he is, I think he is brilliant. And I think also the essays that I've read and the, the documentaries. Uh, mm. Our friend Neil Edmond was talking about that one where he's up in Sunderland. And he mm. said the great thing about it is he said there's it, no point does he patronise. You know, he's doing that. That was he the one documentary that was because one was about working class one was about middle class one was about upper class and he talks and he doesn't try and think oh well, do you know what I better use language that's a bit simpler because they've wor worked in the shipyards and just the way that he of approaches he people doesn't. means that everyone can rise up so they don't have to it's like they right from the start you think they know they're not being patronised yeah, I mean, by I think guy. what's great about him in a way is like a comedian he's um, he's he comes in character, doesn't he? Because mm. he's probably dressed as a woman. So he's sort of... Well, he'd be dressed theatrically. Yeah, he's actually this sort of other thing. I think so what they, we can say, they, for even I, an Essex transvestite potter, yeah. have been let in by the art world mafia. So yeah. there you go. So you can say, yeah, you can say he's an art world Essex yeah, transvestite. You don't need so to worry about what of, you can or can't say. He's sort of not a threat, not... is he? He's kind of like, you know, he's sort of like not... He's, he's kind of this other sort of character. They don't feel they're dealing with... An official kind of artist, so he's able to sort of, uh, yeah. you know, set. But he's able also, to sort of come at them from a different angle. I think it's you know so much of our class anxiety in this country is deliberately yeah. manufactured and perpetuated yeah. to separate people and to make people um, sort of. It's very anti-intellectual and it's very much there to make people feel as if if they do get any education, they should feel ashamed of it or feel embarrassed by it. And so actually, it denigrates everyone and. Obviously, he doesn't patronise people because everyone has the same intellectual capacity. There's no dearth of 
intelligence or talent or reason or even self-education in the country, really. You know, and it's it's all this nonsense, like, about class that separates us and especially alienates people from art and from education. That, like, I think it's quite nice when you have somebody who's, like, you know, joyful and strange and reasonable... And then it's like, of course, like, yeah, of course we're all going to be able to talk about this. People will say you know? who your audience are, even though they don't know. Like, I get that all oh, the definitely. time, where people will say, oh, yeah, but the people you play to are all middle class and they're already four listeners. Now, one, yeah. you go, we get letters from uh, and emails from lots of long-distance lorry drivers listening to Monkey Cage. It's on at 11.30 at night or 11 at night. And they go, oh, it's really interesting. I didn't know this thing about this particular particle. And when Brian Cox was, because obviously he does the science bit and I do the facetious, you know, interruptions. And uh, much like today. And uh, yeah. so that, but that thing, you are, it, have you ever read The Intellectuals and the Masses by no. uh, John Carey? I started it when I was at uni, but I couldn't be bothered because I hated reading criticism and I thought I could get away with not reading any. Fair enough. <laughs> but I did, I did, however, at university, not realise that other people didn't read all the books. And so I've read all the books. If I read a book, I've read a book. I didn't Did you just read skin Clarissa it. or something? No, I, I, no, that period read that. I read... Yeah, because it's long and it's because before people learnt how to write novels. Yeah, yeah. So when we were doing 18th Century, I did like... I've still got it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I did um, like a bu- uh, Pope, Gay and Arbuff, Buffnot mm. doing their literary circles. Yeah. And I did Peasant Poets, I did Chatterton, The Hoaxer. I did a lot about hoaxes, so the, the Ossian manuscripts. Basically, like in the 18th century, everyone decided that they liked collecting old stuff, but no one really had a clue. And then lots of really brilliant working class people who had no access to education or to literature wrote their own stuff, passed it off as old fashioned stuff because that was the only way they could get people interested. Well, can I recommend, because as well as we're recommending books, also each week we'll recommend a Viz comic strip. (laughs) And Lee Healy (laughs) and Barney Farmer, I don't know if you know their stuff, they do The Drunken Bakers, which is fantastic, but they also currently do one called uh, The Mail online m-a-l-e oh it's really <laughs> and it's, uh, it's so there funny. is one on exactly that thing it's it, it's oh, finally that? time yes yeah, yeah. Oh, oh you don't mind racism when it's against white men oh god uh, oh my god i was part of this thing this program for bbc3 called britain's biggest sexists right and conceptually i mean it's aimed at young people really yeah. and it's basically saying like who's the biggest sexist and a lot and it's all about how it's mainly about how patriarchy damages women right and oh my God, everyone's like, this is sexist against men, pointing out all these male sexists. Why aren't you pointing out women sexists? And I'm like, I do not have the time in my life to explain this to you guys. Well, not just the time, it's because you're always looking at builders going, well, I. Um, I'll give you a few quotes from uh, playing to the gallery oh. and see your reaction. To can I say as well, yes, uh, on the can. theme of what we're talking about, uh, Bob and Roberta Smith and Jeremy Della. Jeremy Della has a yeah, book yeah. called Joy in People, which is sort of collections of his art and stuff. And both of those people, it's all about kind of, uh, yeah, challenging classist assumptions about our art and provoking and crea- provoking creativity and inspiring kind of joy in art and joy in people and stuff. And I'd really recommend them to people. Well, the, the, this this one, because we kind of talk about this, where uh, when I won the Turner Prize, one of the press people, one of the first questions they asked me was, Grayson, are you a lovable character or are you a serious artist? Oh, right. That's funny, isn't it? Um, yeah. Nowadays, we live in an era where we're mainly a service economy. So perhaps really, I should say, that I work in the call centre of culture. Now, I imagine, <laughs> does that something for you there, Stuart? <laughs> but this That's, is like... Well... Yeah. This is like I was listening. Oh, sorry. I was, no, go on, go on. I was listening to, as part of this program we were making today, we were listening to this interview with George Bernard Shaw when he was 19. It's brilliant and really charming. But he sort of goes, Oh, if, you, if your children want to be an artist, you must make them into, tell them to become a shopkeeper because they will enjoy the art, but they will not have the pressure of making it. And nobody would, uh, to, if you knew the struggles of my life, you wouldn't choose to be an artist. And I was like, yeah, it's all well and good for you to talk about your struggle, but you are a man who lived in 90, during the 19th century, writing and doing what you loved. Like, And it's Me, the same with that. Really insane. awful puddings. I, yeah, true. But I've got the George Bernard Shaw cookbook. <laughs> His his cook because really? he had a real struggle. He only had one cook, and <laughs> uh, and because of his vegetarianism, it's all the these awful kind of non oh, no based junkets. But it's so just kind of pink mess. But but that's you know like him saying he works in the call centre of culture. Like that's funny, but also it's like you know people do work in call centres and they have to work twelve hour shifts. And yeah, it's but no you know fun. what? what, what <laughs> no, that's not what he's saying. No, though, what, is he's, he? what he's saying there is he's saying that you know it 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 does to think of it. Um, 
as your sort of a service provider. I think he's talking about a kind of responsibility to the customer as well. Things right. Like okay. It's quite. Okay. You know, I think. I think he. I think that he has a conscience, right? And I. I think that he. He okay. He's a, he's a sort of an avant-garde artist, but he's also an artisan. He can make things like pots. He's got yeah. actual skills. I think he that he wants to communicate with people, you know. And he's sort of and I I and I uh, you know it's weird when you you can't really jump from Grayson Perry to me, but I just did it. And I, well, I, having had kids right and having to get babysitters when I go out has made me think be, to be more responsible about doing stand-up. Right? I always sort of think right, I've got to make something happen in this show that they won't have seen before. I've got to make it worth people's while. I've got to do something. I've got to sort of sell it. And if there's a, if there's the sort of self-indulgent bits that I really like, I've got to be able to justify them to someone who has, it's cost them the ticket money and probably £60 worth of babysitting to get in from Zone 6 where they live to, you know. And he it does, it does give you a degree of accountability. And I think he understands that more than a lot of artists because he's from a background where... To engage with art would have cost, you know, or it would yeah. have made, or it would have been a, um, something that they were lucky to be able to do. Of course, now it's much more difficult for people across the board. But I, I think I understand what he's saying now, and he's he basically won't allow people to talk him up. But I get the same thing, and people sometimes say to me, "I don't really see you as a stand-up comedian. I see you as a sort of satirist or something." And I go, "No, I am a comedian. I I try to hold on to the idea of it as like a trade thing because yeah, yeah. I, I think then you." It, it it also stops the people feeling cut out from it. And that's the other good thing about what he's doing and what you can do as comedy is you can you can get people to enjoy things in comedy in terms of content, style and form that they wouldn't go to if you did the same thing in theatre. They'd think that's not for me. Mm. You can sort of Trojan horse it in. I think that's what he does with the fun of what he does. It means that people don't necessarily realise it. They're looking at one of his tapestries that looks like a bit of fun. But actually, it's about class. It's about big ideas, about social mobility and what is national identity and all those sorts of things. And he's so good. That's another lovely book, by the way, which is the collection of those tapestries. I think it's The Vanity of Small Differences. Yeah. Right, so as you're talking about class... The Vanity of Small Differences is yeah. such a great title. That it's, makes it's so much sense to Freud, me. isn't yeah. it, originally, I think. Yeah, the, um, yeah. So because we're talking about class, another... I can see the books that you have, Stuart Lee, and you have John Major's book, My Old Man, yeah. which is... Well, tell us the, the well, story. Well, John Major's My Old Man is a book which I suspect he didn't entirely write himself. Can I read you an extract from it? Yeah. Have you read it? Yeah, it's my yeah. best bit. My old man said, follow the van. <laughs> That's all I've got. Sorry, sorry. It's about his... It's, about it. his, it's nominally about his father, who was a music hall performer, and then about... That's so interesting. I know, and it's about the music hall in Britain. And he writes, with a brilliant understanding, John Major, former leader of the Conservative Party, writes with this brilliant understanding of British class, of social history. He writes with compassion for the performers and an understanding of their lives and, and of the audiences that go and see them and of what ordinary working people wanted from entertainment. And he does this with such genuine emotion and understanding. You wonder how he could possibly have been leader of the Conservative Party. <laughs> and I get a similar thing off Ken Clark. When you hear Ken Clark's documentaries about 50s black American jazz players, he totally nails it and, and is sympathetic to it and is d does a great thing about Lee Morgan's heroin addiction and blah, blah, blah. And you think, why are you, what, how does that square up with yeah. Even personally for I know, even personally. But this is, this is an absolutely exceptional uh, book. What was John Major's working background? Well, John Major's... He was a city, wasn't he? he was yeah. a banker, oh, okay, think, okay. But his father was, his, you know, they, they lived, he grew up in a succession of digs with his travelling um, music hall comedian parents. But so I've read his, his, uh, his brother's book, which is, again, yeah. that's actually, I think that is ghostwritten. Yeah, uh, I can't remember. I think it's a Spectator journalist. Right. Uh, the, one of the reasons you know is at one point Terry Major Ball talks about how wonderful this journalist is he's met, and uh, but that that <gasps> one has hilarious. is a really it, it was I don't know if the journalist did it deliberately or whether it, how how it was he really spoke, but it's filled with these kind of things like I didn't think I'd like New York. I went there for four days, but I could have stayed a week. So it's kind of <laughs> filled with these, yeah, yeah. but it's but I I have a, a and the cover is actually him. Uh, holding on to one of their garden ornaments. What did Terry Major Ball do with his life? I think he just had a kind of very normal. I think he lived in Croydon. I mean, like the first time he ever went away was when he was, you know, by then late middle age, and his his uh, wow. brother was uh, prime minister, and that's when he went to America and stuff. And he was just this vaguely comical character who was 
kind of seen as being a little bit equivalent to uh, George and Weed and Grossmith, you know, Dory the Nobody. Oh, okay, okay. Great stuff in here, actually, as well, in, in Major's book, again, about um, male impersonators, female male impersonators, and how that was a that was mm. a convention of music hall and, and all the things that meant they were allowed to do and say. Um, but, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's really great. And it made, it made me, you know, try and f- follow up lots of the people in it and to, to realise that, you know, we're, again, you know, in the music hall era, there were thousands of shows on every night all over the country, and from little tiny back rooms of pubs to um, to the uh, the big big purpose built theatres, music hall theatres, and it's not dissimilar to what's happening That's now. That's what stand up is now. It's sort of peaked with these stadium things, and the licensing is you know it's sort of affected the bottom. And it, there's a there's a business there's an interesting business structure to it that we can sort of see being replicated by. Um, what we've done but that's also wonderfully reassuring because yeah. it makes you think that yeah. these things spring up you yeah. know no matter what and they get cr- crushed or their time ends yeah. but then something the new thing springs up right. well we, we're major. running out of time and i don't want you to have brought all How these books childish. without mentioning them so well no the one that i'm looking at from the, is is gun in my father's hand yeah well is, this the re- is, i am reading this at the moment this is an, an, a book of, of selected lyrics by billy childish the painter and garage musician and the reason I'm reading it is because it's being republished and the publisher has asked me to write an introduction for it and I'm about three months late on it because I've been so busy but I mean it's um if you you know Billy Childish does what is appropriate to whatever genre he's working in and he uh, I don't think he writes lyrics with the intention that they're poetry unlike a lot of uh, rock musicians I think he thinks that this has got to be shouted out over this music and that's its job and it's not necessarily got to be uh, survive uh, transition to reading and that's what's really interesting about a lot of these they've got a punchy sort of directness that um it, it, you know is is like a, a song rather than a piece of poetry but some of them cross over and this medway wheelers is about his memory of his uh, mother mother um being a, a cycling enthusiast in the, in the in the 40s uh, when she joined a cycle club called the medway wheelers um it's uh she joined the Medway Wheelers in June 1944. She grew up in Wigmore, wanted to see the big outdoors, cycling on a Hobbs Supreme, lightweight, made to measure, Medway Wheelers. Left Rainham on a Friday night, took two days to get to Torquay, went there with her first husband, stopped off in Clavelli for a cup of tea. And he bangs this out over this fantastic sort of Who-style stripped-down mod track, and it's typical of him. Again, a bit like what you're saying about about about, uh, about Grayson Perry, where he'll, he'll take something sort of quite mundane and find a profound, you know, something profound about it. He's he's somebody that like writing is just so bound up in his life. Yeah. Like he's such a creative person that like it's all output. Like with his his poetry and stuff like that, and his art, he's just giving all the time, giving yeah. giving it out. I shouldn't mention this because it's not because I do a separate music podcast. But the Wave Pictures last album was done with Billy Childish, and I think it's it's fantastic. How do I not know that? It's only came out a few months ago. It's a really great album. It's the best thing I've ever done, and it's it's partly because he's in the mix there playing guitar, and he just Mm. he just creates a brutality about it. Yes, that that is that is you know the guy's lyrics are offset by that. It's fantastic. I mean, you kind of. You kind of want them to take him on as a as a mm-hmm. permanent extra like, member. Like uh, Johnny Marr bit touring yeah, with, uh, with Modest, Modest Mouse. Mouse. Yeah. yeah, kind of just yeah, it's great. But also, it's he's cool. like if you I read he's got a book, uh, a collection of his poetry called "I'd Rather You Lied," yeah. and another one, and it's also on Hangman Books, which yeah. and they're all such beautiful editions. They've got his woodcuts yeah. in, and they just they feel very special to hold. And one of the books, and that's got his my favorite poem of his, which is how I found out about him when I was eighteen. It was in a weekend supplement. Um, which was is the Huddy poem that he wrote when his baby was born, and it's so beautiful. And it's like talking about how he's going to make his son's life different from the things that he suffered, and how like hopeful he is, and how wonderful it feels to on the birth of his son. And he says like, if you are slow at reading a mathematic, then dumb, then damn reading a. Oh, I said it wrong. If you're slow at reading a mathematic, then dumb. I've done it again. Fuck myself. If you're slow at reading a mathematic, then damn reading a mathematic. And that's what it says. And it's all dyslexic as well. And I have this really beautiful uh, love of... Uh, no, not beautiful love. I really love reading uh, dyslexic spelling because I think 
it's so personal to the person who writes it and it's so interesting to see how those words take form and stuff like that. I think it's really interesting. Do you have um, a favourite collection? I mean, because I actually quite like the, the, the Faber and Faber brought out Jarvis Cocker, a little collection of his, and they've done it very nicely. And, and they are entertaining to read. Yeah. The, the problem being perhaps that you are so you know them so well yeah. because yeah. many of them were hits. Yeah. But yeah. That, that that kind of works. Leonard Cohen trying... as well. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if there's any ones Cohen's. that have kind of surprised you or whether there's any, any books of lyrics that you... That I really maybe didn't like as no, much. No, well, no, I want to be very positive, Joseph. I'm okay. sick of your negativity. But can I just say we should get Billy Ch- and Billy Childish's book is called My Fault and it's really good. It's a novel. We'd like to have him on as well. So oh Dan Rhodes and Billy but Childish. Don't because he's so once I saw him at Glastonbury and I was down the front and he winked at me and I nearly passed out. He's so charismatic. Oh, okay, we won't do him then. The uh, <laughs> Oh, that was another thing. We never got da- Dan Rhodes, another one I could recommend oh, he's is so Anthology. Yeah. Which yeah. is fantastic where they're all hundred word stories. Yeah. And Marry uh, Me, which is the follow up to it. They're fantastic. They're a hundred word short stories. Each one some of them are brilliant jokes, some of them are dark, twisted things, mm. but they all work in a hundred words. I know you've got to go shortly, Stuart, so the final thing we have to mention is you have brought in uh, are they both uh, Titans annuals? Well, I brought in some Marvel Comics annuals that I got at Christmas in 1977 and 78 and these old hardback annuals would come out at Christmas and somebody would license something from Marvel Comics, some British publisher without really know, even knowing what it was huh. and would insensitively package it together and the uh, these are both ones I remember reading about the age of 8 and 9 uh, a Spider-Man one and a Fantastic Four one. Whereas my dad at the front has written my name in, £1.10. And uh, the the two things about this that freaked me out, I think there was a kind of error here where they put a, a story in for kids at Christmas where Spider-Man meets the Punisher. And I'd never come across anything like that. Spider-Man's basically a lawful good character who um, follows conventional moral rules. And into this story is introduced the Punisher the chaotic good character who, because his family were killed by mafia blokes, is just murders everyone all the time in a really <laughs> weird way. That I mean, that, uh, that you know, it's surprising that this got through comics code authority rules of the seventies. This ultra violent character with no mercy for anyone. I remember being absolutely just shocked by it. It was the most brutal thing I'd ever seen as a child. And then this other one with the Fantastic Four. In a, in a Jack Kirby story from the 60s, travelling oh, right. into other dimensions, what blew my mind in my dad's flat, Christmas 1978, sitting looking at this after he gave it me, is this double spread by Jack Kirby, who of course is regarded as one of the great wow. pop artists now. The way he chose to convey the Fantastic Four travelling through another dimension has been to abandon his usual comic uh, style, create a photo collage of what appear to be cut-up microscopic images of, I don't know what. Well, it looks like, some of it looks like crystals, yeah. some of it looks like atoms. Uh, and stick them over the top of it. And, like, I, you know... It looks like the island of Staffa. It's amazing. I've never seen anything like it. As a, and I remember, you know, remember looking at that for hours and hours. And, uh, and of course, you know, maybe it's, again, like what we were saying about Grayson Perry and Billy Childish and people like that. They were, they were, this this is a guy that was working within the rules of genre like we do in stand-up. And he somehow made children look at abstract art. Yeah. <laughs> Snuck He's it made in. made an eight-year-old boy <laughs> stare for hours at Christmas at a double spread of weird abstract art. And, he, and yet he would have gone home with his $30 of yeah. issue page rate. And that, I think, is probably a lot of the stuff that's come up, the things that are interesting me increasingly are I suppose we, we're asked questions about what we like and we can't help but in some way end up describing ourselves. I appreciate that I'm going to be doing what I do, stand-up, and probably just that for the next 30 years of my life. And I'm thinking all the time about what can you do within genre that also elevates it or communicates things mm-hmm. to other people. And weirdly, lots of the stuff I've chosen today seems to be what I've taken away from it seems to be about doing that. Well, can we quickly go through, just so everyone knows what we have talked about? And also, Uh, though, I think it's really interesting to think of... It's also very, very natural as a person, as a creative person, to have such a mix and such a smash-up of high and low, easy and not easy. You know, it's normal to have that kind of variety as well. So today's books were Heart of the Original by Steve Aylett, which is from Unbound, uh, Playing to the Gallery, which is uh, by Grayson Perry. I read In Cold Blood by Truman Capote, and I very much recommend it to you. Fantastic. Prose is beautiful. Called Let There Be Life by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. It's funny when I was. Hang on, hang on. I'm sorry. I've got how unprofessional you were. I'm excited. 
Uh, Gun in My Father's Hand by Billy Childish, soon to have new introduction by Stuart Lee. John Major's My Old Man. And we had a couple of others, didn't we? Uh, Ray Bradbury that you weren't very happy with. Uh, I'm reading and... a book called The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace, which is about a guy who's from a very disadvantaged background in Newark and then goes to Yale, but then it's things are very difficult for him. Well, and we will be dealing with that it. probably in the next podcast. The, most of the ones, I wanted to talk to you about Robert Aikman. Because I'd never realised how brilliant Robert Aikman was, and I'm sure you must be a Robert Aikman fan, aren't you? No, never heard of him. Well, he's absolutely amazing. Uh, so in the next one, we may well be discussing discovering scar folk, uh, Robert oh, Aikman, oh, the wine dark scene, sure and uh, also the thrilling adventures of Lovelace and Babbage, amongst other things. And Dennis Potter's uh, fantastic collection of his journalism. If you know, Oberon Books have brought out um, his old journalism, his TV reviews, and lectures, and we may well be talking about that. Dennis uh, Potter really isn't. Much, uh, much in the forefront of stuff at the moment. But there was he? there was a really big season at the BFI, and I took my dad to see two of the greatest ones I think, which are John Lemessurier in Traitor, where John Lemessurier plays a kind of Burgess Philby McLean character who now lives in a little flat in in Russia, and it is amazing, an incredibly mm. powerful performance. And then uh, Blade on the Feather with Denham Elliott and uh, Donald Pleasance, which is on a similar theme. Anyway, we were the Liberal Metropolitan Media Elite. Yes. Uh, Stuart Lee putting a box of almonds into his bag. Yeah, well, I'm on a nut-based diet. That's Aren't really You look really healthy. We've lost two and a half, three stones. Have you? Yeah. You look really healthy. Yeah, but I was nearly dead, let's face it. Oh, I God. Looked, I was on my last legs, and I realised I've got, you know, I've got children, and more than the responsibility to them, I've, I've got responsibility to the audience, the public, you know, just to keep on... It's weird though because when you were fatter on stage, you did seem cheerier. I was cheerier. Not much cheerier. I was cheerier. Uh, Like Santa Claus. And I was. was That's Josie Long's voice from the Metropolitan Media Elite. That's Stuart Lee's voice from the Metropolitan Media Elite. Uh, This is Robin Inch's voice from the Metropolitan Media Elite. Uh, We'll be back next week. Cultural Marxism. Thank you very much to uh, Trent as well, who is uh, part of our uh, producing team as well. And if you would like to help us make more of these, because we're basically just managing to afford to get a studio, uh, we have a a, a Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. If you put in Patreon and then look up in Robin Inch, it will say, Robin Inch is making a podcast with Josie Long. And if you can pledge even a dollar, which I think is about 62 pence per show, uh, then it means that we can keep making these things. Yes. And uh, we're not doing it for profit. We are just trying to make sure that we can do it properly. Thank you very much. Read some books. Goodbye.